Hello, welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. Here are the opening lines of Dante's great poem about purgatory, called the Purgatorio. And this is the, these are the very first contos. For better waters now, the little bark of my poetic powers hoists its sails and leaves behind that cruelest of the seas. And I shall sing about that second realm where man's soul goes to purify itself and become worthy to ascend to heaven. Here let death's poetry arise to life, O muses sacrosanct whose liege I am, and let Calliope rise up and play, her sweet accompaniment in the same strain that pierced the wretched magpies with the truth of unforgivable presumptuousness, the tender tint of orient sapphire suffusing the still reaches of the sky as far as the horizon deeply clear. Hey, wait, I thought purgatory was supposed to be a real rough place of punishment. Dante doesn't seem to think so. So what is it about how we think about purgatory? This week on Oro Valley Catholic. You know, Christians seem to focus on being saved, but purgatory is about people who are saved and who want to be sanctified, who want to be made holy. And that's at the heart of this reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Because if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it's this trajectory to sanctification. So here's part of the Gospel for this weekend from Mark, chapter 1. A leper came to Jesus and, kneeling down, begged him and said, If you wish, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I do will it, be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately, and he was made clean. Then, warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is this at the end of that first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, which is about Jesus' basically is one whole very busy day uh, in Capernaum? So if you go back and remember just what's happened in the chapter uh, so far, um, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist says, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus is baptized. He is baptized not because he needs to be made clean, but he's making the waters of baptism clean for us because the healing of the leper isn't just about healing of a disease like when Jesus cured uh, St. Peter's mother-in-law last week. Leprosy is its own thing. It separates you out from the community. It's an image of what serious sin, what any sin really does to all of us. It's not just the physical healing that this man has, but it's the healing that re reunites him with his community. He can go home again. He can go to the synagogue again. He can go to temple again. He becomes part of the people of God. And so salvation, um, salvation is a healing. Sanctification is what reunites us completely to the people of God. What's the point of showing up on God's doorstep? And he, is it enough that he invites you to come in even though you stink of sins, you're still selfish, we still think only of ourselves? Okay, so we're not going to go to hell. Is that such a big deal when you can't participate in heaven? 
So purgatory is part of heaven. And think about it in terms of this first uh, chapter from uh, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is baptized. He struggles with the demons and the devil in the desert because you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're willing to walk by the iniquity of sin, unless you're willing to just follow Christ past all the false promises of Satan. Uh, he comes then and he says, repent and believe. That is, you have to start thinking differently about how it is that you live your life because you trust in what God has for us. None of the things that we recognize as pleasures are probably going to be pleasures in heaven. But he calls us to follow him just like he called those first disciples to make them fishers of men. And so when he did that, what did he do? The first thing he did is he cast a demon out of a man. Then he did a physical healing. And then in today's uh, gospel, a leper kneels in front of him as in an attitude of worship. And he wants something more than just to be made to be healed. He wants to enter into the kingdom of God. My friends, is the kingdom of God a what or a who? And I think you know that it'll be a place because when we rise from the dead in our glorified bodies, we know that heaven will be a place. All of, all of uh, God's creation will be redeemed and changed. And that is a place. It's a spiritual place, but it's still a place because we're going to have a body. Um, but the internal healing, the cleansing from addiction to sin, this is the key. And this is about sanctification and how it is we're restored completely to the love of God and the love of neighbor, both of which probably all of us, maybe or at least most of us, experience only incompletely in this world. But St. Paul talks about it. He talks about it as the imitation of Christ. And so let's turn to the second reading for the, uh, this, this sixth Sunday that is of ordinary time, which it prepares us for Ash Wednesday this coming Wednesday. And let's talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the imitation of Christ. St. Paul calls us to be imitators of Christ. So in this section of Oral Valley Catholic, let's talk about imitating Christ, how it is that St. Paul and Luke talk about the imitation of Christ, and then prepare ourselves to think about how we once again enter more intensely into purgation, looking to free ourselves from all of these illusions that we have, that we might more completely imitate, imitate Christ. So here's the reading, the second reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Avoid giving offense, whether to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in every way, not seeking my own benefit, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Um, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so... Uh, Jews who don't believe in Christ, Greeks who are pagans, and the church, those Jews and Greeks who have come to believe that we do everything and how we use everything to give God the glory so that these three groups will either 
come and see and respect and love God made manifest amongst us, or leave their addictions and their pagan ways behind, or with the church of God, they will uh, be uh, supported, that they'll see a brother or a sister that also takes the life of grace very seriously. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what St. Paul is talking about is a question that comes up in the Corinthian community. And remember, uh, Corinth is in southern Greece. It's between like the big uh, Caian Peninsula and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's this little tiny isthmus um, where Paul was so well received. And what's happening there, it's a pagan city, and uh, almost all meat that was consumed, and not a lot of meat was consumed in the ancient world, it was an important uh, food item, but mostly there were agricultural items uh, that were consumed. But when you had a chance to eat meat, it's because it had probably been sacrificed to some pagan god. Even if you look at the sacrifices of the Jewish people in the temple, which were still going on as St. Paul uh, wrote this letter, because uh, Jerusalem had not been destroyed yet, um, that sacrifice offering either to Yahweh or to whatever your pagan deity is, uh, makes the meal a sacred meal. And it's a meal between the deity, the one doing the offering, and the one who eats the meat. So when they offer meat, then a lot of it just goes on sale in the marketplace, and you'd go down there to buy meat to take home to cook. But that the complaint of the Corinthians is that fellow Christians that do this are partaking in pagan sacrifices. Well, gosh, how do you live in the world without getting sucked into the world? St. Paul would say, these sacrifices to the pagan gods have no power whatsoever over a Christian, um, that the pagan gods are just demons. They can't do anything for you. But uh, at the same time, it gives scandal. And if you're treating uh, the pagan sacrifices like the Jewish sacrifices, like Jesus, that is such a muddle that you can't make any sense of. But to believe that you are saved through the one sacrifice of Christ, frees you from the power of all these other sacrifices. Yet, there is something that is required of the believer, uh, even if they have to live in the world, that in the midst of the world, with all of these claims, just like there are claims on you and me, that in the midst of all this, we're called to imitate Christ, uh, to be purified, to live a life chastely for the love of God. He, it's the, the way the Pharisees thought about this world and the world to come is that they're like two separate realities. God will end up uh, his business in this world and it'll come to a fiery end. And then the new world will come and the Pharisees thought they would be resurrected in the new world. The Christians believe the resurrection had begun. And so if you think of that old world that we live in now and the, the new creation that's to come, the Christians would see them as having overlapping edges. And we live in that place of overlap. And it is the kingdom of God amongst us, but in a sinful world. Jesus was resurrected and came back to his disciples in this world. So the kingdom of heaven is amongst us. When we are baptized or confirmed or receive the Eucharist, it's the kingdom of God reaching into our lives. That's why when we talk about those three sacraments, especially the other sacraments also, 
but baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist as sacraments of uh, sanctification. They give sanctifying grace because even as we live in this world, we're simultaneously living in heaven. But in this world, it's a time of imitation where we fail and we succeed. We rely on God's grace as we walk through this fallen world. And so to strive to be free from the power of pagan sacrifices, uh, to be the power of uh, pagan ways of life, uh, to take the things of this world and give them an undue importance because it's all going away. The things of the new world have already been given to us in the sacraments, the presence of Christ, the church. And so the way of life that Paul calls us to is to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And this is the earliest spiritual theology in the church. And really everything from the Benedictines, the Jesuits, the Carmelites, uh, St. Francis de Sales, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, all of our teachers are building on St. Paul's understanding of the imitation of Christ. And so in the midst of a fallen world, who are you called to be? Who are you? You're the Lord. And you're walking with the Lord. And you're trying to conform your life to the Lord. So here's a really good example from Scripture before we talk a little more about this world and the come as a participation in purgatory on the way to heaven. So St. Paul, uh, one of his disciples is St. Luke. And so when you read the Gospel of Luke, we're now in the Gospel of Mark, but since Paul and Luke are so closely identified, to understand what Paul means by imitating him because he imitates Christ, um, you have to look at Luke and understand how Luke understood this. So I'm just going to give you some of the parallels between the life that Jesus led and the life that St. Luke says um, that Paul led, because Luke is writing both about Jesus and Paul and Luke has heard of the life of Jesus, but he's witnessed the life of St. Paul. And so um, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are where the exam these five examples are going to come from. And so Mark 1 or Luke 4, remember that uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a high fever. doesn't make her clean if she's just got a fever. That doesn't make you unclean. It's just sickness because in our life, uh, bodily burdens are just part of our lives. Bad knees, bad backs, uh, etc. So that's in Luke 4. St. Luke talks about the life of Paul in Acts 28, where he heals Publius's father, who is sick with fever and dysentery, which is basically diarrhea. And so Jesus heals someone from a fever. Paul imitates his master, by healing Publius's father, who's sick with fever and dysentery. So um, Jesus laid his hands on the sick. Uh, that's one of the things, you know, in ordination, in confirmation, uh, at the uh, calling down at the epiclesis, which is the calling down of the Holy Spirit in Mass, when the priest puts his hands over the chalice or the bishop puts his hands on, um, on uh, the person to be confirmed, or when the priest, when he gives the anointing of the sick, lays his hands on the sick person before he anoints them. We do that because Jesus laid his hands on the sick, and that's in all the Gospels, but especially Luke 4. 
So in Acts of the Apostles about St. Paul, it said that St. Paul laid his hands on a sick man. So when you call for the priest to anoint, he's doing exactly what Jesus did. It's the imitation of Christ. Now, maybe not a great moral imitation all the time, but uh, doing what Jesus does, because this is about sanctifying grace, and sanctifying grace, forgiveness of sins, does not originate in the human person, but in God. And so if you're going to make Jesus present, you just do what Jesus does. And so here's a third example from Luke. Uh, he says in chapter 4 that uh, Jesus healed many with diseases in Galilee during his Galilean ministry. In Acts 28, um, St. Paul, who landed in Malta on the way to Rome, and Malta, an uh, island in the middle of the Mediterranean, directly south of Italy, where Paul is headed to Rome, where he'll be judged by the emperor. But while he's shipwrecked in Malta, it says he healed many with diseases, Acts 28. Here's another example, Luke 22. Uh, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, and remember he was struck in the face because of how he talked to the high priest. And so in Acts 22, when St. Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem before he's taken to Rome, again he's struck, just like Jesus is struck. He gets what his master gets. And here's one last example, though there are others. Uh, Luke 23, and so Jesus is accused before the procurator, uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the procurator of uh, Judea. So when St. Paul is accused, He's accused before the procurator, Antonius Felix, and that's in Acts 24. And so what you see is this example of St. Paul uh, following his master. So when I was in the seminary, we had a good guy. His name was Rabbi Zev. I don't remember his last name, but he was a rabbi at a local synagogue, and they hired him to come in and teach a class on Judaism. And Rabbi Zev said, that uh, what Judaism is, is it's about how you act, how you imitate, how you live the Jewish life. You don't like learn Judaism, you do Judaism. You know why Catholicism is like uh, Judaism? You know, we talk about cultural Catholics where this is what we do in Eucharistic adoration or processions or prayers before meals or um, you know, all the little things, shrines in the home, um, all of that is about doing Catholic. Uh, Judaism, modern Judaism, and Catholicism are the two forms of the religion of the people of Israel that come out of the first century. Uh, the Sanhedrin is, is gone, the uh, Sadducees are gone, the Essenes are gone, the Therapeutae are gone, the Zealots are destroyed in the second century AD. But um, Catholicism and Judaism look a lot alike in this idea that uh, it is a way of life. Um, there's beliefs with both of them, right? Um, but like prayer for the dead, it's what you do to express um, the, your closeness to the dead. Uh, because our prayers for the dead don't make God more merciful. You can't make God more merciful. Um, but it unites us to his act of mercy and our connection to the ones that we've loved. And so that this whole idea of the imitation of Christ is about the communion of saints and that we're not competitors. 
Uh, but that the saints and the saints, when you love them, like St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Joseph, they're examples of how you're a priest, of how you're a nun, how you're a devout layperson, a mom, a dad, a kid. Um, there's examples in all uh, frames of life uh, from Maria Goretti, who's just a little girl in her fidelity, Gerard Magella, Aloysius Gonzaga, they're all teens and younger. Saints are of all ages because following and imitating Christ is possible at every stage in life. And so even now, like Paul, when we're talking about healings, which are miracles, remember we just had this great event at the parish about Lourdes, and there was a Lourdes procession and talked about miracles. Uh, the lady who wrote uh, Miracles at Lourdes is coming out uh, to, to speak here in the next week or so if you can make it. But again, it's the idea that miracles are not about the past. They're still happening today because there are still people praying in front of Jesus, kneeling in front of Jesus, going to his mother and asking uh, for her, her intercession on their behalf. And so... Um, we do live in the kingdom of heaven. We are going through a cleansing because we all have problems with sin. And that's really this last part of this week's Oral Valley Catholic. Yes, we're in heaven, the kingdom of heaven even now, but we're in the purgatory part because purgatory is not a separate place from heaven. Hell, purgatory, heaven are about the human relationship with God. In hell, fire is punishment eternal. In purgatory, fire cleanses. In heaven, fire is the passionate love of God and neighbor. Same God present in all three places. It's how we human beings um, experience them. That's why Jesus says, you gotta think, you gotta change how you think, you gotta repent. And so let's turn to the last part of Oral Valley Catholic, and let me give you a beginner's guide to purgatory. And so, not everything you want to know about purgatory, but enough to keep your hopes up for yourself and those all around you. And what I'm talking about comes from a book called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven by the great philosopher who's still alive, Peter Kreef, very faithful Catholic man. And he was a Calvinist. He was a Protestant before uh, he converted, uh, actually came into communion with the church. Uh, when you're baptized, we don't think of it as conversion. When you're baptized and you go from being, say, a Baptist or a Calvinist, a Baptist, our kind of Calvinist, um, and then you come to the Catholic Church, it's not that you become a Christian, it's that you become in full communion with the Church and the Holy Father in Rome. But one of the things that Creve talks about from his Baptist background is that uh, Protestants and Catholics seem irreconcilably split on the simple issue of whether purgatory exists or not. There's ample stuff in the scriptures about purgatory, but you have to read scripture with the church and not come up with your own uh, interpretation. You know, the Protestants have a point. You remember when Jesus is on the cross and the good thief says, uh, uh, Lord, remember me when you, when you uh, enter into your kingdom. And Jesus promises them, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, now he didn't say heaven, he said paradise but let's not split hairs too much. Obviously some hope for this man. So the Protestants would argue, paradise and heaven are the same thing, therefore you go directly from this world into heaven or hell, and purgatory doesn't exist. And the reason for that is abuses by Catholics. 
you know, about how it is that you buy indulgences to get people out of purgatory. No one ever said you get somebody out of hell, but you can get them out of purgatory according to some corrupt Catholic practices at the time of the Reformation. And Protestants were right to protest that. Corruption is corruption, no matter who does it, whether it's a Catholic or a Presbyterian. Um, but when they kicked out about seven books out of the Old Testament and decided purgatory doesn't exist, it really skewed how Protestants ended up reading the scriptures. Because uh, there, it is true, there is just heaven and hell, but purgatory is uh, part of heaven. It's why you were probably taught at some point that what makes purgatory so much more delightful than life on earth is that you uh, sense heaven. Um, you can see it from there. You know, who was a great believer in purgatory was C.S. Lewis. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, he wrote, our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, it is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here and no one will upbraid you with these things, nor draw away from you, enter into my joy. But should God not reply, or should the, the sinner not reply, as C.S. Lewis says, with submission to you, sir, and if there's no objection, I'd rather be cleansed first. It may hurt, you know, and the man responds, even so, sir, it's the leper. He wants more than just healing. He wants more than just sanctification. I mean salvation. He wants sanctification. He wants to be made clean. He wants to be a saint. So he learns how to love God right and love his neighbor. And that's not possible without leaving sin behind. So think about some of these things about purgatory. It's part of heaven. It's a joyful, not a gloomy place because God's there and he's working with you. It's a place of sanctification, not justification. Jesus saved us on the cross, but the sacraments, the imitation of Christ, the Christian way of walking, this is how we become clean. So purgatory is also a place of spiritual education rather than deeds. So it's not about works. When St. Paul talked about works in Galatians, he meant things like circumcision and supporting the temple. Uh, instead, um, that what purgatory is about isn't a second chance, but it's a chance at looking at our lives and um, drawing wisdom from them um, to see the light, to see how our lives were wasted. But if we spend our time fruitfully in purgatory, our wasted lives become a source of education, changing how we think because we end up seeing in hindsight all the ways that our failures undermined ourselves, the people we loved, down to ultimate generations. Sin is this interconnected web of evil that like those sacrifices the early Christians participated in Corinth that Paul cautioned them against, that we can participate in the pagan mindset, the pagan uh, sacrifices, the pagan marketplace, even if we're devout Catholics. And we have to just spend all our time thinking about how it is that we imitate Christ. So purgatory is the completion of our lives. Every life is an incomplete symphony. There's always something left undone. There's always going to be regrets. There's always going to be something you wish you'd done differently. Wisdom in old age, and why old age is such a beautiful thing, 
is you can learn from your failures. But wouldn't you rather be Maria Goretti, who learned so much at a young age, or Aloysius Gonzaga, that learned about the sacrificial uh, nature of charity at age 16 when he died of a plague in Rome? So think of purgatory as truth. Remember on that first day when God created light, wisdom? In the new creation, how do you enter into heaven? Just like in the first day. You have to participate in, re, in, in wisdom, and you have to acquire divine wisdom. And so um, you can do that through the slog of life, right? If you're paying attention, say your prayers, participate in the sacraments, trust in God, try to imitate Christ and his saints. Um, but think of purgatory as like a chance of looking at the book of your life, and as you read through the parts that are cringeworthy, and the parts that are more hopeful, maybe you learn from it and you change how you see your life. And you see it not as a tragedy, but it's a comedy where you're the slapstick hero of it to a story about great hope. That's the end more like a Hallmark romance than anything. That God loved you that much through all of that. All the people that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't abandon you in life but accompanied you. And so you look at the mystery of iniquity that you uh, participate in, and the wisdom that you take from that becomes um, the light with which you participate in heaven. And so to do that, purgatory is a place of detachment, or you're separated from your early life. You're separated from that, that body that you use to participate in at least the carnal sins. Um, when you look at it as wasted lives, uh, you see purgatory as a chance to redeem your life. Um, because you learn about uh, who you are. And when people pray for you when you're in purgatory, they light a candle for you, they offer a, ma a mass for you, they pray for you in their evening or morning prayers. Um, you can see that the hope that is in Christ is always in that story that you look at, both with like embarrassment, but also great hope. So what happens to sin in purgatories? Well, they become the fuel that brings light into our life, where we start understanding our real need for God. And then we really understand what Jesus said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when you can see that, um, then you're participating uh, in the life of Christ, not just what he does, but how he thinks and how he looks at the world. What's hell? Well, the best description of hell is in the Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And Ivan Karamazov, who goes crazy at the end of the, the book, um, he's the example of the person in hell. And this is what Dostoevsky says. He's an Orthodox Christian. And these are the words of Ivan Karamazov. I believe in the underlying order and the meaning of life, I believe in the eternal harmony in which they say we shall one day be blended. Yet would you believe it? In the final result, result, I don't accept this world of God's. And although I know it exists, I don't accept it at all. Let me make it plain. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. Then the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, 
something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they, we've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has been happened with men. But though all that may come to pass, I don't accept it. I won't accept it. That, my friends, is hell. But that's not you, because we have hope. And then hope is a joy. And that joy is the participation in the mystery of heaven and what we call purgatory. So, you know, I've almost had over 60,000 listens to this podcast, thanks to you and people like you. Give me a like if you can, and hopefully see you next time on Oral Valley Catholic.